0: Jesus Christ, to you alone all praise belongs. All praise. Every ounce, every morsel, every amount that we could possibly give, to you alone all praise belongs. Christ is exalted over all. That's why. Because Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, has all authority in heaven and on earth given to him. That's why you get all the praise. Because you're the King. You're our king. You're the head of this church. You are the one that dwells in unapproachable light. You are altogether holy and merciful and righteous and gracious and compassionate. God, you are steadfast in your love for us. You are a promise-keeping, creating, sustaining, transforming God. You are the God who stays the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you transform us one degree of glory to the next, and you will finish the work that you've started. That's why you get the praise, because you are faithful. And it is your name that we call upon now. The Word of God himself, Jesus Christ, we open it now, and I pray very quickly we would humble ourselves, O God, under your Word. Teach us, convict us, refresh us, encourage us. Let us not kick your word away in pride. Lord, just humble ourselves right now. This is where change happens. This is where transformation happens. And we take a moment right now to cast those anxieties, to cast whatever distractions are on our mind right now, that we would come before you with clean hands and pure hearts and say, Jesus, take this. I repent of this. I need to hear from your word. I'm coming under you willingly, joyfully, promptly. Say what you want to say to your people. Guard my mouth from error, Father. And Jesus Christ, will you be exalted over all? In Jesus' name, church, if you agree, say amen. 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 You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, and the ushers are coming forward right now. If you do not have a copy of God's Word in front of you, just slip your hand up. They want to put one in your lap. Psalm 51, it's on page 271 of those Bibles that they are handing out right now. 271. And if you recall from last week, we kicked off our summer series, so excited for this series, uh, called Heart of Worship. And the focus of the series is really to answer a couple questions that we have When it comes to worship. Some of the main ones. First off, what is true worship? Secondly, what is the heart that God desires from us in worship? If he is to receive it, we will see that very strongly today. And thirdly, what does living a life of true worship look like? Now last week we got a biblical definition of worship that over the next five weeks now we're going to be unpacking. And it says this, you'll see it on the screen. When it comes up, there it is. There we go. Worship is the passionate expression of my love for God because of his love for me that overflows in my life and from my life. Let me say it again. Worship is the passionate expression of my love for God because of his love for me that overflows in my life. There's the heart that we're going to look at today. And from my life that we started to look at last week. This is why we see right here, worship is not just a Sunday thing. Worship is not just singing songs in your car or anything else like that. Worship is a lifestyle. And remember, if you remember from Isaiah 43 last week, worship, why is it such a big deal to God? Because it's the very purpose for which you and I were created. We were created to worship the one true God. And so last week... We saw that to have a heart of worship, it has to start with a heart of dependence on God alone. A heart of dependence. We looked at Psalm 105. And now this week, we're going to look at the overflow or the outflow of a heart of dependence on the Lord. And that is a heart that is repentant before the Lord. A heart of re- worship is a heart of repentance. And so there's a lot of different people here from a lot of different backgrounds. Let's get on the same page at what the Bible says repentance is. And you saw those beautiful verses all throughout Scripture that move us towards this definition right here. Broken down, bare bones, fundamental. Write this down. It's key for today. Repentance is to surrender to God. You'll see it on the screen. By turning away from sin and turning towards Him. That's repentance in its bare bone definition that we see biblically. To surrender to God by turning away from our sin and turning towards Him. It's a 180 degree change of mind. It's a change of thinking. It's a change of heart that increasingly turns from the filth of our sin to the holiness of God, to the purity of God, to the character of God, and increasingly to the image of God in our lives. It's turning away from our sin and turning towards it. A change of mind, a change of heart. This is why true repentance increasingly says, God, I want you more than my sin. I want you more than my sin. I'm going to turn away from the computer screen. I'm going to turn away from the gluttony. I'm going to turn away from the anger and impatience and frustration because I want you more. Here is blessing. Here is suffering. Why is it so important that the psalm, the Psalter would contain a numerous amount of what's called penitential psalms that we'll look at today. Psalms of repentance. Why is it so important to God? Well, here's why. You'll see it on the screen. Without true repentance of the heart, there can be no true worship from the heart. There it is. Without true repentance of the heart. Hear this today, loved ones. There can be no true worship from the heart. But the problem is this. Would you agree with me? We more often rationalize our sin than repent of it. Would you agree? Maybe it's just me. Thanks. (laughs) That's great. We often will rationalize our sin more, try to justify our sin, than repent of it. Some examples we see. Maybe these will ring home to get our thinking started here. We minimize it. We rationalize it through minimizing it. Well, it's not really that bad. That pornography that I'm looking at, well, it's not like I do it as much as maybe I used to, or, or that other guy. It's not really that bad. It's just a picture on a screen, and I don't look at it for too long. Or maybe it says, well, the gluttony that I'm constantly filling my body with, the running to food, it's not really bad, because isn't there a term for that? Isn't it called comfort food? Isn't that just Normal. Keep eating and take the edge off the stress. Well, you know, my lack of integrity at work and taking extra time on my breaks or not going into work on time or leaving early when my boss isn't around or or showing up on time, but then not working with excellence because he's not overlooking my shoulder, that's not really that bad. I mean, he's away and there'll be times when I press in a little more. Really, is it that bad? That that those things I'm stealing from the office, the paper clips, the pens, the everything. Like it's just a little thing. This is a big place. It's just a little thing. They're not going to miss it. That you know that exam that I just looked at my classmates' paper for that one answer, but I did the rest myself. It's not that bad. That little lie that I told. It's just a little. What do they call it these days? White lie. What's a white lie? It's just a little lie. Like, I just had to fudge that to get ahead. But every, here's the thing. Everybody's doing that. What's the point? What does it matter? It matters to God. It has to matter to us. Or, if we don't minimize it, here's another way we rationalize it. We blame others for it. We blame others for our sin. Well, I had to lose my temper because my spouse didn't do what I wanted. I she he made me angry. Did he make you angry? Really? Did she? Or or this? My I had to become impatient because my kids wouldn't listen, or my coworker didn't do what I want, or my neighbor did this to me. So I had to be impatient. If they had just done that, I wouldn't have got impatient. Or here's another one that we so often will use, and it is this: If God would just get me out of my health situation right now, then I wouldn't be anxious anymore you sure? You sure about that? Well, if God would just give us the the provision that we're seeking him for, then we wouldn't be frustrated, and we wouldn't be, then we'd have more time for him, and it, really? We blame God. I think if we're honest, we'll confess that we all do that. And here's the thing, we live in a culture That encourages us to be more concerned about our reputations than repentance. See, it encourages us not to give into a worship of God, but what is it? A worship of self. A worship of self. And here's the truth we're about to see today from Psalm 51. God takes no pleasure in in it. No amount of justification, no amount of yeah, but, no amount of but if he or she did this, he takes no pleasure in it. But I want us to be encouraged this morning through this psalm, and it is this. God has made a way to truly worship him. And here it is. It's through repentance. And here in our text, we're going to see three postures of the repentant heart. That we must increasingly embrace, increasing, you never hit your repentance ceiling. We must increasingly embrace if we are to live lives of true worship to God that bring Him glory. Let's stand, to honor the authority of God's word, and we will read the first section of Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Hear the word of the Lord and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, the first thing we see here in these first six verses, we're confronted with this. A heart of worship Is a heart that embraces confession. What is confession? The path to repentance. A heart of worship is a heart that embraces confession, the path to repentance. And the question that we're confronted with today from these first six verses is this true repentance begins with confession. Am I humbling myself before God? True repentance begins with confession. Am I humbling myself before God? Look at verses 1 and 2 again. David says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let's get some context here. This is a psalm of David, as you see in the subtitle there. And as I mentioned, this is one of many penitential psalms in the Psalter. And what it is, is to be sung, actually, as a hymn of instruction. This is a hymn of instruction that was to be sung as a means by which the people of Israel confess or repent of their sins to God. It's really an instruction manual. These 19 verses really are a blueprint of what repentance looks like and what God desires if he's to receive it. Here's the repentance blueprint. And so King David, you said a little background on King David, he's very qualified to write this. King David's very qualified to write a penitential psalm, because you see in the subtitle there, it says, it's written in response to when the prophet Nathan went to David and confronted him about committing adultery with Bathsheba. And then, on top of that, to try to cover it up, plotting the murder of her husband Uriah and then lying about it, and living in deception. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1-15. to Now, you remember, a little brief recap here. Uriah was one of David's most faithful soldiers. And David should have been off to war with the kings, but he stayed home. He stayed home, and he's on his rooftop, and he sees Uriah's wife Bathsheba taking a bath... And then the enemy comes in, and because David wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing, he wasn't on guard, and all of a sudden, he gets Bathsheba pregnant and tries to cover it up through her husband. And when that doesn't work, he murders her husband. So if there's anyone qualified to write a psalm of repentance, it's David. And this psalm here is David's response to when Nathan came to him and said, You are the man. You are the man. Do you have godly men and women in your life that can just come to you and say what you're doing is wrong against the Lord? If not, hey, loved ones, start praying for them. You have men and women in your life that will do that. You hold on to them. Those are people that love you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so David's response in verses 1 and 2, notice this, uh, when he's confronted with his sin, what does David do right out of the gate in verses 1 and 2? He humbles himself. He humbles himself. He turns urgently to God and appeals for God's mercy. Look what he says here, right out of the gate. Have mercy on me, O God. He's like, I'm not going to posture myself. I'm not going to re- rebuttal this rebuke and pride. Well, yeah, Nathan, but, blah, blah, blah. I'm humbling myself under it. Have mercy. I'm turning to the Lord. The word mercy there means, the Hebrew word means to have compassion. Have compassion on me, God. Have grace. Save me from my sin because I have broken your law. I've broken your word. Now notice this. Notice in David's response here. David is not appealing to God based on his worthiness to do so. He's not like, I'm King David. You said I was the man after your own heart. So here I am. Please forgive me. He's not basing it on his merit. He's banking everything on God's mercy. There's nothing in David's merit. David deserved to die for this sin. That's the penalty of sin, is death. He deserved to die for it, and he knows it. But his appeal is totally based on God's character. Notice the key words there. Have mercy on me, O God. What's it according to? According to me? According to my abilities? No, according to your. According to your steadfast love for him. Now, so key in the Hebrew there, the, the, the phrase steadfast love, there's no ch sound in Hebrew. So it's chesed love. It's a guttural. C-H is pronounced chet. And so it's called chesed love, which is the strongest unbreakable word, covenant love that God could ever give according to your steadfast love, according to your unbreakable, loyal, covenant love that you promised to your children that isn't dependent on what they do, but on who God is. It was according to God's abundant or great mercy that David pleads with the Lord to blot out his transgressions. I love the term blot out. Circle that and write this down. The the term blot out means this. To wipe out... Abolish and obliterate. I love that. It's not just like, hey, maybe wipe them out and then... No, no, no. Obliterate my transgression from your memory. Remember my sin no more. What's transgression? Just rebellious acts against God. It's another name for sin. And wash him thoroughly, that is completely from his sin, to cleanse or purify him. Leave no part untouched, Lord. Now live in the text for a moment. Just live in the text. Put yourself here. When God confronts David with his sin through Nathan, remember, what doesn't David do? We have to get this. He doesn't, in pride, make excuses for his sin. Yeah, but she was taking a bath. If she had just not been there, I wouldn't have said, really, David? He's not making excuses for his sin. Well, if the servants weren't cleaning my room, I could have been there. Really? Really? He's not blaming other people. He's not making excuses for it. He no longer tries to hide the sin, saying, Nathan, can you just not tell anyone, please? Can you just not? Like He doesn't even go there. He's not trying to hide it. He doesn't run, notice, he doesn't run to other things to try to numb it. I'm not going to run to the wine. I'm not going to run to the alcohol. I'm not just going to, well, maybe I'll try to earn off my sin by going to the battlefield and start being a good soldier for the Lord. Really? He's not running to other things to try to make himself feel better. He's taking the conviction and turning to the Lord. He's not getting defensive. Well, that's just your opinion, Nathan. Who are you to tell me how to run my life? Does this sound familiar? We might not say that with our mouths, but I guarantee we're tempted to say it in our hearts. I guarantee it. Who are you to tell me how to live? What's this? He doesn't say this. Well, I'll get around to dealing with my sin later. When it's pointed out to him by the goodness and love and grace of God, he's promptly dealing with it. He's turning to the Lord with it. He's not saying, well, I'll just maybe I'll pray about that, and then we'll deal with that sin maybe later. I have. He's like, it's go time. He quickly humbles himself and gets low. If you could take your sermon note and just put two words at the top of it today, it would be like this. Get low. Get low before the Lord and stay there. He gets low before his God, and he confesses his sins, and he pleads. That's what these first six verses are. A plea for forgiveness, not based on his merit, not based on his worthiness. He's filled with lust. He's filled with adultery. He's filled with deceit. He's filled with murder. He's filled with the same things you and I are. But he bases everything on God's mercy, loving, kind, compassionate, and gracious character that was, notice this, that was ready to forgive David and draw near to him if he would but turn to him in true repentance. God will oppose the proud. He will actively work to break us of our sin, but he will embrace us with his grace to those who are humble. This is David's banking everything on that. He embraces confession so he can once again embrace the Savior. Question. True repentance begins with confession. Are you humbling yourself before God? Are you humbling yourself before God? When you're confronted with sin by God, by God's word... Conviction of the Holy Spirit or by others who love the Lord and love you so much. They don't want to see you walk over a cliff in your sin. When you're confronted, are you getting low before the Lord and humbling yourself in confession before Him? Quickly, promptly. Or, in pride, are you getting defensive? Are you rationalizing or minimizing your sin? Well, we don't have to leave a sinful situation because it's just more convenient for us to be in it right now. Saving a little bit of money. And you expect God's blessing on that? Are we rationalizing it? Are we minimizing Are we blaming others for it? Just, hey, can I just encourage you? This was such a hard week for me prep-wise. Can I just encourage you with this too? Can we just get real and humble ourselves before the Lord? This is where life change happens. And we have a choice to make right now, Hope. We have a choice to make. We can sit here in our pride and point fingers at me or God or anyone else. But at the end of the day, between you and the Lord, this is what the Lord says leads to repentance, which leads to worship, which leads to life. So you can do that if you want. But I just encourage you with everything I can as your pastor that loves you. Can we just humble ourselves before the Lord and say, search my heart right now. Because this is not about my reputation. This is about repentance. And the true worship, the only worship that you will receive is on the line. And therefore, your glory in my life and through it. It's not a game. Are we humbling ourselves before that? And maybe you're here. Maybe you're here and you're like, you're not going to the Lord with that. Because you're sitting under guilt. You're sitting under condemnation. And you're like, I can't go to the Lord. i got to kind of clean myself up a bit. Listen, it's... True repentance is not based on your merit. It is based on God's unchanging mercy and love for you. He's like, son, daughter, I see you in that. Would you but turn? I don't want to have to break you of your sin. It is my loving kindness that leads you to repentance. This is what David knows. This is what he's banking on and what we must understand today. John six thirty seven. Jesus says, those who come to me, I will not cast out. We must humble ourselves and go to Him in confession to have true repentance. Now, okay, you say, well, how do I do that? What does true confession actually look like? We see two ways right here in our text. Here's the blueprint. True confession is this. I must acknowledge my sin, get specific, and make no excuses. I must acknowledge my sin, get specific, and make no excuses. Look at verses 3 to 4. For I know my transgressions. See, here he is. No excuse. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David declares that he acknowledges and recognizes his sin and it's always before him. That means in the forefront of his mind. I know this is happening because he sees it how God sees it. Do you and I see our sin how God sees it or how we want to see it? And he owns up to it. David owns up to his sin by declaring that although he realizes that he has wronged Bathsheba and Uriah, he has hurt that and broken that family. His sin was ultimately against God himself. His sin was ultimately against God himself. And in God's eyes, what David did was evil and David was not going to try to justify it or make excuses or call it anything less than what God called it. He's saying here the sin is what you say it is, God, not what I want to call it. It's not a joke. The sin is what you say it is, God, not what I want to call, it, not what's convenient for me. This is the mark of true repentance. This is the mark of godly grief that leads to life. See, God was right. And David was wrong. End of story. And if we could sum that up, he's not making any excuses. And so David would submit to whatever God, see that? In verse 4, whatever God decided to do to him, David's submitting because he knows God is completely justified. Completely to do whatever he decided to do with David's request. You didn't make me do this, God. You are justified to do whatever you see fit. I'm throwing myself on your mercy right now. He says, if we could sum that up, he says, I choose to do this. I chose to do this. Neither the devil nor anyone else made me do it. I am guilty, and whatever you decide to do, Almighty Father, I accept. Because you are justified, and I'm throwing myself on your mercy. See what David's doing here? He's expressing what's called godly mercy. Sorrow Godly sorrow, not over here, you know how you can tell godly sorrow he 's less concerned about being caught than he is of the fact that he sinned against the Lord. Are we more concerned when God reveals sin, and by the way, Jesus says there 's nothing hidden that won 't be revealed, so if we think we can hide sin, good luck, but when that sin comes out, are we more devastated by the fact that we got caught in it or are we more devastated and sorrowful over the fact that we sinned against a loving God that created us for his glory and he's perfectly holy and ready to show his power and glory through us if we would just continue to seek him in holiness what are we more sorrowful over you see you'll see this quote on the screen true repentance flows from true realization of whom we've really sinned against There's no true repentance when you're like, well, I got caught, and I guess I better change. There's a bigger picture you're missing. True repentance flows from true realization of whom we've really sinned against. How do we know this? Look at 2 Corinthians 7.10. You'll see it on the screen. For godly grief, here it is, the godly sorrow, produces repentance. Godly grief. God, I've sinned against you. Your perfect, holy, and righteous standard. Your very character and nature I've sinned against. And godly grief produces repentance that what? Leads to salvation. What's that? Deliverance. Without regret. Aren't we just filled with regret so much when we don't walk in repentance? Guilt, shame, condemnation. Whereas worldly grief, the worldly grief of, well, I didn't get the job I wanted because I stole or I broke up with my girlfriend because I wouldn't deal with my porn issue. and "Ah, I'm more concerned about that than that. That worldly grief does nothing to change your heart. What does it produce? Scripture is very clear. Death. Death of the soul. Death and destruction. That's the best that's coming for you. For me. Through worldly grief. That's a sobering word. So let me ask you a question. What do you need to own? What do I need to own? And it's been so challenging this week. Crucible. Crucible. What do you need to own right now and say, against you and you alone have I sinned? I'm not making excuses anymore. Number one, true confession says, I must acknowledge my sin, get specific, and make no excuses. Number two, true confession means I set my hope. Only God can save me. Only God can save me. Look at verses 5 to 6. 5-6. to Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Steve, what David's stating here, David states that on his own, he has no hope of overcoming his sin and having a right standing before God. He can't clean himself up. Why? Because he was brought forth, verse 3, verse 5, sorry, he was brought forth, That means born from the womb in sin. And he was guilty of sin from the moment his life started. And do not miss this. His life, like your life, like my life, like every other life in this world, starts at the moment of conception. In sin did my mother what? Conceive me. I didn't become a sinner when I became out of the womb. I wasn't guilty of sin when I hit puberty. From the moment my life started, I was conceived in sin, and my life started at conception, as all lives do. I don't care what the world tries to mop that and muddle that truth on. God says it starts at conception. We inherited that from Adam. Just look at Romans 5. And see, David isn't a sinner because he sinned. We have to understand this. David isn't a sinner because he sinned. David sinned because he's a sinner. You see the difference? David sinned because he is a sinner. That's the guilt of Adam's sin that must be broken by the salvation in Jesus Christ. And like us, David was in desperate need of being saved by God's grace. He says, I can't do anything. I have no hope but you. I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I can't say enough Bible verses. I can't make enough wise decisions. And as such, you see in verse 6, he says, Only God could teach him truth and wisdom and change his heart, the inner being, to walk faithfully and know right from wrong. Because God alone is the source of all truth that purifies us from our sin and helps us stay faithful to him increasingly. And in case you're wondering about New Testament truth on this, just look at John 15, 5. You'll see it on the screen. Jesus says this, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, apart from me, Apart from a personal relationship with me, the Son of God, you can do nothing. The word nothing there means no spiritual good whatsoever to save yourself. There is no hope but him. And this is the declaration of true confession. It says, Lord, I need you. I don't need alcohol. I don't need more of my abilities. I don't need more money. I don't need more justification. I need you. You are my only hope, and I'm banking everything on you. So question, who are you setting your hope in today? Yourself or God? Well, maybe my circumstances will pan out. Maybe the Lord will just overlook this sinful area in my life. Who are you setting your hope in, yourself or God? Your ability to overcome it, your ability to justify it in pride, or humbling yourself before Him. Maybe you're here and you've never, maybe this is the first time you've heard this, you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And your first step to setting your hope in God is to say, Jesus Christ, I believe you are the Son of God that came to earth as fully God and fully man and lived a perfect life for 33 years and you went to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin so you could wash me clean, so you could blot out my transgressions and I have no hope apart from you and the best I can expect apart from you is separation from God in eternity in hell. Lord, I need you. That's your first step to setting your hope in God. A heart of worship is a heart that embraces confession, and from the overflow of confession, posture number two is this. heart of worship is a heart that seeks restoration. This is the purpose of repentance. So we've gone the path, and now the purpose. The question we're confronted with in 7 to 12 is this. Repentance leads to restoration. Here's ready for some good news. Repentance leads to restoration. Do I realize what's at stake? Do I realize... What is at stake? Look at 7 to 12. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Look at verse 12. Look at this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, after humbling himself and confessing his sin to the Lord, David then asked God to restore him through repentance to a right relationship with God. David knew that because of his sin, his purity in the Lord was tainted. His joy in the Lord was absent. His desire for the Lord was compromised. And his intimacy with God was broken. His strength from God was weakened. And only through a repented heart could all this be restored, and it's the same for us today. It's the same for us today. You'll see it on the screen. We must understand this. This is so key. Write this down. Repentance is the gateway to restoration. Repentance is the gateway to restoration with God. Initially, through salvation and being restored to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, we repent of our sin and confess Him as our Lord and Savior, but then ongoing, for an ongoing cleansing, intimacy, and presence. Manifest presence. This is why Acts 3.19, it's one of my favorite passages in all the scripture. You saw it on the screen. Apostle says, repent, therefore, and turn back. Turn away from your sin. Turn towards the Lord. Why? That your sins may be blotted out. There's that blotted out again. Obliterated. Not remembered anymore. What? That times of refreshing. Anyone here in need of times of refreshing of the presence of the Lord today? Yes. What's the gateway to that? Repentance. Times of refreshing may come to the Lord. Question, repentance leads to restoration. Do you realize what's at stake? By keeping your sin, by walking in that, by allowing your heart to be hardened with that? Are you realizing? Well, let's check this out, what what restoration actually looks like. This is what's at stake. I will have, through repentance, I have restored purity through the Lord. Restored purity through the Lord. Look at verse 7. David says this. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Now the term purge there in the Hebrew means to remove or purify my sin. Wash my sin. with. And he uses the, he uses the language of hyssop. What is hyssop? You'll see it on the screen here. Here's a picture. This is a hyssop plant. Okay, this is a hyssop, and this is a leafy plant that the priest used in the Old Testament to sprinkle blood. He's using Old Testament imagery here. He's sprinkling blood or water on a person to make them ceremonially, ceremonially clean. Okay, so he's he's here. The priest would come and sprinkle that. And it would mark a ceremonial cleansing from their sins so they could offer sacrifices. This is why in Exodus 12, when the people of Israel, what did they use to paint the blood of the lamb over their doors to keep the angel of death from killing them when they were being exiled for, out of Egypt? They used a hyssop plant, Exodus 12, if you need the exact reference. Ceremonially clean. And David uses this imagery to declare his need for forgiveness and spiritual cleansing to be holy for God. Now let's get some clarity. You say, wait a second, I thought Jesus washed away all my sin. Past, present, future. We don't want anyone to be confused. Here's what this means. For all who've repented and trusted Christ as their Savior today, we've been given a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26. Yes positionally we have been cleansed before God. So when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us in our sin, he looks at us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, which is perfect, holy, righteous, and pure. So positionally we're cleansed before God and declared righteous. All our sins been forgiven, yet, yet, we are still in need of ongoing cleansing. Ongoing cleansing from sin that hinders our fellowship with Christ and with one another. This is why 1 John 1, 9 says... Condition, if, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's an ongoing cleansing that's needed, that the power of the Holy Spirit would not be quenched, that the fellowship of the believers would not be hindered. So question, what sin is hindering your fellowship with Christ and with others and needs confessing today? This is what's at stake, the purity. The purity before God through the Lord. Ask. You're wondering, ask? Ask the Lord. Ask other brothers or sisters that love him, and you walk with an accountability. Number one, through repentance, we have restored purity through the Lord. Number two, we see here, through repentance, we have restored joy, joy in the Lord. Look at verse 8. And nine, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and, there's that term again, blot out all my iniquity. See, once David had repented of his sin and been forgiven and cleansed by the Lord, look what happens. Look what's on the other side. He was cleansed from the guilt that he felt for it. That's the bones being broken. The entire person, I'm feeling crushed by this. God would remember his sin no more and his joy in the Lord would be restored his joy in the Lord would be restored. See, do you ever realize, loved ones, do you ever realize that when we have ongoing, unrepentant sin in our lives that we know we need to deal with and we have not brought before the Lord, um, our joy in the Lord is sapped and we're more apt to grumble and complain. See, because here's what we must understand. Sin always over-promises and under-delivers, right? Sin never increases our joy. Ever. Sin never increases joy. It only increases joylessness. Overpromising, promising under-delivering. So question, is this you today? You ever get in that season where you're like, I just feel like so dry and I'm just prone to complain. I'm noticing my heart getting hurt. Hey, I encourage you, take it before the Lord and say, as David prayed in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. The Holy Spirit wants to get it out of there. And as soon as he reveals that, cast it on the Lord. Acknowledge it. Set your hope in him. And he will restore the purity. He will restore the joy. But that's not all he restores. Look at this, number three. He restores desire for the Lord. Look at verse 10. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The word create there means transform my heart. What's the heart? The inner person, the mind, the will, the center of emotion and a moral character. And David says, and renew a steadfast or right spirit in me. That is the will. Renew in me a desire to do what you say is right, God. What you say is right. See, here's what we must realize from this, loved ones. Unchecked sin hardens our hearts to living how God desires us to live. But a refreshed heart leads to refreshed desires. You ever realize when you start to get out of God's word for a while, you let sin manifest itself for a while, you ever realize how your motivation for trying to get back in God's word and do what he says is right just goes... That's why. It's a need of renewal. Is your heart in need of renewal today? Sin removed, renewal given. Number four, repentance restores intimacy with the Lord. A desire for the Lord leads to restored intimacy. Look at verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. The The word presence there in the Hebrew means this. The place of God. Listen to this. Look at what's at stake. With unconfessed sin, here's what you are forsaking. The presence of God, which is the place of God's peace, the place of God's joy, the place of God's comfort, the place of God's power, the place of God's holiness. That's what's at stake. You see, more important, look what David says here, more important than David's kingdom. Notice he says, more important than his family He's not asking, restore my reputation, God, restore my buildings, restore my money, restore all this. What's he asking? It was the manifest presence of God that was at stake in his life. This was his greatest loss because of his sin. Do you realize what's at stake in our lives? Same thing. God's intimate, conscious, manifest presence with us. See, David appeals to God to not take the Holy Spirit from him, which would also mean, if you take the spiritual power out, what do you think is going to happen to your ability to serve God fruitfully and faithfully? So he's appealing God, don't take your Holy Spirit, because it also means David's ability to serve faithfully and fruitfully for the Lord. Now let's get some clarity. Again, context is key. Old Testament, the Holy Spirit hasn't been poured out yet. That happens in Acts 2 at Pentecost, right? Holy Spirit hasn't been poured out yet, so what you see all throughout the Old Testament, God anoints his leaders, God anoints his chosen people with the Spirit for specific tasks. How many times in the Old Testament do you see, and the Holy Spirit rushed upon him? The Holy Spirit rushed upon him. The Holy Spirit rushed upon him. That's why. God's anointing him for service. So today, though, when Christians sin, the Holy Spirit isn't taken away from sin. The Holy Spirit is the seal or guarantee of our salvation. You can just look at that in 2 Corinthians chapter 122. He's the seal, the promise of our salvation. He can't be taken. But here's the reality for us: we may be set aside from service or usefulness to God until we are made right through repentance and are no longer quenching the Spirit in us. Holy Spirit's like, get out of here. He's like, get out of here. He's trying to kick sin out. That's why Ephesians 5 says, be filled with the Spirit. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. This is what's at stake. Repentance restores intimacy with God and restores fruitfulness for God. Lastly, we see this. Repentance, restore. we have a restored purity through the Lord. Through repentance, we have a restored joy in the Lord, a restored desire for the Lord, a restored intimacy with the Lord. And now here we see in verse 12, I restored strength from the Lord. David asked the Lord to uphold him. Notice that? Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The word uphold their loved ones, means to support or strengthen. This is the key to God's strength in our lives. Support me, strengthen me with a willing spirit. Willing there means generous or eager spirit. David's asking the Lord to strengthen him continually with a willingness to obey God, which, by the way, God is very eager to strengthen us to do. He's very eager to give us the strength to obey. When that temptation hits, he's very eager to do that. And the truth we see here is this. Repentance is the channel through which God's strength is released into my life. Repentance is the channel through which God's strength is released is released in our life. So when we say, Lord, give me the strength to parent. Give me the strength in my marriage. Give me the strength to work. Give me the strength. Okay, the gateway is repentance. Is there any unconfessed sin in your life that you know of that needs to get right? There's where you'll find your strength. It's a question. Repentance leads to restoration. Do you realize what's at stake? What's your next step? See, a heart of worship is a heart that embraces confession and declares, Lord, I need you. A heart of worship is a heart that seeks restoration, the purpose of repentance, saying, Lord, I want you. I want you more than my sin. And lastly, we see here, a heart of worship is a heart that worships with adoration, the fruit of repentance. This is what it leads to. A heart of adoration, the fruit of repentance. And the question we're left with today is this. God wants my reverence, not my rituals, is my worship from a contrite heart. Heart of worship. God wants my reverence, not my rituals, is my worship from a contrite heart. Look at verses 13 and 19. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight, this is sobering for us, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. David's saying right there, you're not going to delight in the rituals, or I would give it to you right now. If all you want is some raised hands, if all you want is some tambourines and instruments, if all you want is me to put some bulls on the altar, i just do that right now. I can go through the motions in my sin. I can do that, right? Just like you and I can. He says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased. Verse 16, with a burnt offering, the sacrifices of God, here's the heart of worship, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Verse 18, do good design Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. See where he lands it? David now describes both the individual and corporate fruit that comes from a heart that's been restored in the Lord. Notice it starts with the individual and then goes to the walls of Jerusalem, verse 18, the corporate community. Why? Because individual sin impacts the fellowship of the community of believers. The more we walk in unrepentant sin, the more the fellowship in the body is hindered. Because we're a body. What happens in one part impacts the rest. Corporate worship is hindered through unconfessed, ongoing, unrepentant sin in our lives. See? But he he gives the description of a heart that's been restored is now in the place to offer him true worship. The fruit, verse 13, he says he's going to teach... He's going to teach transgressors the ways of the Lord. What does that mean? about God's mercy, about God's forgiveness, saving grace. And what does it say in verse 13? These sinners will return to the Lord. There's that word return again. They will repent and be saved as David declares the salvation of the Lord. This is the declaration of the gospel in our lives. When we have a heart that's not being hardened by sin, when we have a heart that's constantly drawing to the Lord, Lord, I need you. Lord, I want you. Lord, I love you. You can't help but speak, Acts 4.20. You and I can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. Through the glorious grace of the gospel, when we see that person walking in sin and them crushed under the weight of guilt and iniquity, you say, There's a Savior that loves you. And He gave His life for you. His steadfast love never ceases. He's slow to anger and abounding in it. Would you turn to Him? And He sent His Son for you because He loves you and is ready to forgive you. Will you come to Him? And they will return. Recall from last week, remember loved ones, see it on the screen. Life of worship is a life of witness. There it is. A life of worship is a life of witness. And then in verses 14 and 15, David says, If the Lord delivers him from the blood guilt of murdering Uriah. Again, get specific with the sin. He's like, blood guilt. I killed Uriah. Here it is. If you deliver me from that, David will then give God praise by singing of his righteousness, his character, his compassion, his kindness, and declare his praise for what he's done and forgive him and restore him. That's why you notice the songs that we sing in worship. They're all exalting the praise of Christ, his character, his nature. This is why. Worship, true worship, is never man-centric. It's not about how good we are. It's about how awesome our God is. Always. And then 16 to 17, David affirms why repentance and restoration of the Lord is critical of true worship. Here's, this is sobering, 16. God does not delight in ritualistic worship. Offering the bulls, strumming the guitar, lifting the hands, closing the eyes. Meanwhile, you're living in unconfessed sin, open rebellion against God, and you're going through the motions. God does not delight in in that, but what does it say? He despises it. He's like, You keep your hands to yourself, you keep your voice down if that's what you want, if that's how you want to live. I am not receiving that worship. I am not delighting in that worship because I see your heart. Because true worship that God desires must come from a heart that is humble and reverent before him and broken and contrite over one's sin and needy for the Lord. This is the heart of a true worshiper. This is why as we land the plane, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this. See it on the screen. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He's looking. Is that a heart that's contrite? Is that a heart that's needy for me? Is that a heart of repentance? He's not looking at our flashiness. And this is why I love how this got scaled back today. You notice that? He's not looking at flashiness, he's not looking for lights. He's not looking for like crazy keyboardists, although I love our keyboardists, praise the Lord, and they're not crazy. That's great. He's looking for hearts of worship that say, forget the instruments. Here's my heart. Here's my heart. You can take your voices, you can take the stage, you can take it all. I want your heart. And if those things happen as an overflow... Raised hands, closed eyes, shouts, praise Praise the Lord, but let them come from a heart that is truly seeking the Lord, saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I want you. Lord, I love you. God wants my reverence, not my rituals. Is my worship from a contrite heart? What do you need to get right with the Lord today? Ask him, ask him. He's ready to meet you. Let's pray. Father, you are so clear in your word that you will not receive worship that we offer to you on our terms, ever. You will receive worship that is given to you on your terms. And your terms are a heart of dependence and a heart of repentance. A heart that says, Lord, I've transgressed against you. I'm not gonna make excuses. A heart that says, Lord, I need you. I need the joy of the Lord as my strength again. I need to be restored in you. Your presence is what I seek right now. Lord, I need you. Humble, reverent, repentance, not reputation. God, I ask in Jesus' name as we get ready to sing this last song, I pray it would be such an anthem of our hearts. This would be a place of release all over this place. Holy Spirit, would you please, in your mercy, reveal areas of sin in our lives that we just need to cast on you to restore our joy, restore our purity, restore our intimacy, restore our power and strength and desire for you. May we offer you this worship from a heart that desperately longs for you. In Jesus' name.